Picking up then in chapter 26, verse 38. Then two robbers were placed on execution stakes with him, one on the right and one on the left side. And people passing by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So you can say you can destroy the temple, can you, and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the stake. Likewise, the head Kohanim jeered at him along with the Torah teachers and the elders. He saved others, but he can't save himself. So he's the king of Israel, is he? Let him come down now from the stake. Then we'll believe him. He trusted God, so let him rescue him if he wants him. After all, he did say, I'm the son of God. Even the robbers nailed up with him, insulted him in the same way. Now, from noon until three o'clock in the afternoon, all the land was covered with darkness. And at about three, Yeshua uttered a loud cry, Eli, Eli, lama savachthani, my God, my God, why have you deserted me? And on hearing this, some of the bystanders said, he's calling for Eliyahu. And immediately one of them ran and got, took a sponge soaked in vinegar and put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink. And the rest said, wait, let's see if Eliyahu comes and rescues him. But Yeshua, again, saying out in a loud voice, yielded up his spirit. And at that moment, the paroketh in the temple was ripped in two from the top to the bottom. And there was an earthquake with some rocks, with rocks splitting apart. And also the graves were opened up and the bodies of many holy people who died were raised to life. And after Yeshua rose, they came out of the graves and went into the holy city where many people saw them. And when the Roman officer and those with him who were keeping watch over Yeshua, saw the earthquake and what was happening. They were awestruck and said, here, he really was a son of God. And there were many women there looking from a distance. They had followed Yeshua from Galal, helping him. And there among them was Miriam from Magda, Miriam, the mother of Yahahov and Yosef, and the mother of Zavida's sons. And towards the evening, there came a wealthy man, from Ramatim named Yosef, who himself was a Talmud of Yeshua. And he approached Pilate and asked for Yeshua's body, and Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Yeshua took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen sheet and laid it in his own tomb and was recently cut out of a rock. And after rolling a large stone in front of the entrance to the tomb, he went away. Miriam of Magdala and the other Miriam stayed there sitting opposite the grave. Well, you know, you could really get uh, schizophrenic or confused because here we are coming up on Christmas and I'm teaching on Easter. But anyway, but I guess it's kind of apropos, isn't it, that they go together. So I I read it last week and I want to read it again this week. And that is Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. You are holy and throned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me. For trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashin surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I cannot count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not afar off. O you, my help, come quickly to me. 
to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of oxen. I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All the offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he is not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nation. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. And before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Now, again, I want to step outside of Matthew and look at the whole picture of the events from this point on of the crucifixion. And so what I'm going to do is use the criteria that are generally called the seven last words of Christ because it's only by going back and forth between the Gospels that we pick up everything that happened. None of the Gospels record all of these statements. So, and it looks, the order is pretty much the accepted order of the words. Obviously, some of them, we're real clear on, on how they occur. So, I want to flow through this way, and it means what I'll do is I'll give you the reference for each of the each of the words as we come to them and so the first one is Luke 23:34 which says father forgive them for they know not what they do and this is really the whole issue of the cross anyway in these words in fact this is the whole issue of the gospel message it's the fact that it is about forgiveness and restoration and Christ is looking down from the cross. And who is he forgiving? Well, specifically, contextually, we would be talking about the Jews and the Romans because those were the ones who were involved with the actual events of the crucifixion. But the fact of the matter is we don't want to limit it to that. And the other point we need to remember, and this this reflects also in how we understand forgiveness in our own lives, is that to forgive is not synonymous with excusing. And that's one of the most important things we can understand. I do, a, unfortunately, I do a lot of work in dealing with adult survivors of, of childhood sexual abuse issues. And one of the standard reference works that's used, I don't use it, but I mean is used in this area, says that you should never forgive your abuser. And of course, the way forgiveness is defined there, I would agree, because that is to to make it what they did unimportant or to forget about it or in effect say it doesn't matter. And that's not what forgiveness is. When Christ forgives, he forgives in full light of sin. And we're told to forgive and forget. We can't do that. We can forgive and no longer remember because that's active. That's when those thoughts occur to put them away. When God forgives our sins, they are paid for and he no longer remembers them because they're paid for. And so, yes, he is forgiving. He's saying to those who are actively involved in the events of the crucifixion to forgive them. And he's not saying He's he's not saying that it's excusing them, but he's saying even they do not understand the full impact of the evil they're committing. But the fact of the matter is when he's saying that, he's saying that about everyone who put him on the cross, which is us too. Interestingly, as a sidelight for many hundreds of years, Elements of Christendom used the Jews' involvement with the crucifixion as a way of saying, see, the Jews are cursed and they're set aside and God is done with them and now the church has replaced them. But the problem is, Jesus said, forgive them for they don't know what they do. 
And that also ignores the fact that we individually put him on the cross. And, of course, it conveniently ignores Rome's involvement with it, too, because it becomes an excuse for anti-Semitism, not a theological truth. But I don't know what would have happened if Jesus had not said that. But he's looking down because that is the message. That's what we're to do. We are forgiven. Therefore, we're commanded to forgive. And much of what Christ is doing on the cross, I mean, he's there to pay the price for our sins. But even in his words, it's about others, even while he's going hanging on the cross. And so this is he'd been teaching this. And he's still teaching this in Luke um, 6.35. We read, but love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. That's tough to do, isn't it? Forgive. I mean, the Hatfields and McCoys would never have even made it in the history books if they'd done that. Uh, And we've seen that feuds in families where people haven't spoke to each other in the last 30 years. And if you ask why, they don't even remember. Yes. The Jews and the Arabs would not be Oh, yeah. Boy, would the Middle East be quiet if we followed this. Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he'll divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. In the midst of all this, what does he say? He's he's saying from the cross, he's saying to the Father, forgive them, those that put him up there. That what was sad is that forgiveness that was available to Judas too, if he had taken advantage of that. See, that's the point. That forgiveness is available to all, but it's only efficacious to those who accept it. And what he modeled, we in turn are to model and to teach to others. In Acts seven sixty, which is Stephen's the martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen, then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He learned. And interestingly enough that he said that because we know many were saved. And who was among the crowds that were saved there at his martyrdom? Yeah, Paul. Do not hold. See, we don't know. When we forgive, when we model forgiveness, we don't know what God will do with that. Except one thing. He'll make us, he'll bless us with our willingness to forgive. First Peter 2, 21 through 24. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to the sins and live by righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. They didn't try to make it right, didn't stand up for his rights. We are so focused in this culture on our personal sensitivities, on our rights. So much so that Christians, our mouths are supposed to keep shut because we might make somebody uncomfortable with truth. We might offend them. But we've bought into the same kind of stuff too. You know, you. what about my rights? Look at the way I treat it. I don't want to be a doormat. Yeah. Well, I'll just take them on Judge Judy. Hey, when that doesn't work out, I know somebody. I knew somebody that was actually on there. She uh, worked in the blood bank where I donated on a regular basis, and she was on Judge Joe Brown, and he made mincemeat out of her, and she lost. And so many people had seen that episode who knew her. <sighs> oh yeah, I remember. There's something to be said for. So. 
the first thing he says is about what it's all about. It's about forgiveness. Then the second statement is in Luke comes from Luke 23:43, which says, "Truly, I shall today you will be with me in paradise." Let me read the the whole passage, which is uh, 23:39 to 43. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, "Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us." But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? (laughs) And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's interesting because Matthew tells us they both initially were railing on him. But somewhere along the line, the Holy Spirit opened this one's heart and he realized what he was doing. And somehow or other, he knew something of who Jesus was. And so he he said, it is interesting, everybody that Rome crucified wasn't necessarily innocent victims of Rome's cruelty. Because what does this guy say? He says, we deserve what we're getting. But this man doesn't. So why don't you keep your mouth shut? And then he turns to Jesus. And Jesus tells him, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's interesting. They didn't get off the cross and quickly baptize the guy. Oh, never mind. Um, what a blessing to be hanging there and no, and dying and suffering and everything you're going through and knowing that it was going to end and that you were going to be with God. Jesus is concerned for the thief on the cross next to him. See, the people in general, Father, forgive them. The individual, today you'll be with me, which means he's forgiven, right? More forgiveness, yes. I think it's interesting the fact that this guy says, remember me. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously the Holy Spirit had to have revealed what was in store and where he was headed. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been made asking. Well, his, his expectation was that there was something that they were going to go on from here. That's for sure. So in some way, he believed in some kind of a resurrection, did he? Tradition. Oh, well, I'm Jewish. I can't help it says that actually those two men on the cross were followers of Barabbas, for whatever traditions were. But the fact is that this also points out that, you know, a deathbed confession, if it's sincere, brings salvation from no matter what kind of a life one had lived. I've had people say, well, that's not fair. Excuse me. None of us deserve salvation. None of it's fair in that sense. But if Christ's death for the sins is adequate for all and the only criteria for salvation is the acceptance of that gift of salvation, then as long as one is upright and breathing, it's never too late. Which should give us hope for those people we have been praying for for the last up years who are stubborn and hard-hearted because God can still touch their hearts. It's never too late as long as somebody is alive. And that is a comfort and that is a hope. And it points out, this man points out to the way people are saved. It's only when they finally admit their helplessness, their inability to do anything for themselves, to set their pride aside, because that's what keeps people from being saved. That somebody can truly be saved. And it also points out that we should not judge uh, about what people know and how they are saved. Because we have no way of knowing how much he knew, how theologically sound he was. All he knew was he was lost and Jesus was had the only answer. And he certainly didn't understand the implications of the cross. But he knew enough to turn to Jesus and repent and that was all he needed to know and he didn't have a chance to grow and mature <laughs> the third statement is from John 19:26 through 27 
Now, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. In the midst of being crucified, he looks down and worries about or takes care of, makes sure his mother is taken care of. What's interesting about this? Now, the disciple whom he loved, it's interesting that John is the one that records this since John was the beloved disciple and since obviously John was therefore given responsibility to care for mom, who would have only been about 40-something at the time. He would have been about 33 and she was young, remember. The only thing that occurs to me, because that's the way my mind works, is I wonder how come Jesus assigns her to John because he was the oldest son, but she had other boys. But she turned, because maybe John was the only one he fully trusted. I don't know. But anyway, he gives that responsibility over to John. And so she was, we assume, and I think this one's a safe assumption, she was a widow at this point since Joseph we never hear anything about. Um, And so in the midst of all that, he's taking care of this responsibility. Honor your father and your mother. Again, he's thinking about others. And not himself. Everything he's doing up to this point is concerned for others. This is found both in the Matthew passage we looked at 2746 and also in Mark 1534. Eli, Eli, lama savachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The notes to the ESV say, Jesus quotes Psalm 22.1. The last two words are Aramaic, the everyday language spoken by Jesus. And the first two could either be Aramaic or Hebrew. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the most profoundly mysterious words in the Bible. I'm working, doing reading on Eastern Orthodoxy for this week and next week for this. And... One of the big differences between Eastern Orthodoxy and Western Christianity is the emphasis on the unknowable, on the mystic, on not, on, and not being afraid of that, but actually appreciating those truths. And if there's ever a passage in Scripture that should, we should be sympathetic to that approach, it's these, because we will never, I think, even in eternity, be able to wrap our brain around what was actually happening here. We can put it into words. This is obviously that moment in which Christ was carrying the sins of all humanity from creation of Adam to the last person that will exist before God brings it all to an end. And in some way that is incomprehensible, not surprisingly, since we can't comprehend the Trinity anyway, for a moment in time it seems as if the Trinity is fractured. That God cannot look on unrighteousness. Christ is carrying the unrighteousness of the world. And so God in some mystic way turns his back. On Jesus and Jesus experiences what hell is, which is separation from God. How is that possible? Because he is God. I don't know. We cannot know. This is the suffering of the cross. The physical, and this is why I didn't emphasize it last time. The physical is horrendous as that is from a human standpoint is nothing compared to what's going on here. This is when the sky turns black. This is when God draws a curtain over the events that are occurring. Interestingly enough, ESV's studying those suggest even here he's thinking about others. Surely his cry uttered with a loud voice is expressing not bewilderment at his plight, but witness to the bystanders and through them to the world that he was experiencing God's forsakenness for Not for anything in himself, but for the salvation of others. Surely Matthew, understanding this, quotes Jesus' words to challenge his readers. Jesus' torment, despite his anticipation of it in Gethsemane, was surely inconceivable in advance. And MacArthur points out, in his comments, points out that we cannot fully understand what's happening 
in this unique and strange miracle, Jesus was crying out in anguish because of the separation he now experienced from his heavenly father for the first and only time in all of eternity. It is the only time of which we have a record that Jesus did not address God as father because the son had taken the sin upon himself. The father turned his back. The mystery is so great and imponderable that it's not surprising that Martin Luther is said to have gone into seclusion for a long time trying to understand it and came away as confused as when he began. In some way and by some means, the secrets of divine sovereignty and omnipotence, the God-man was separated from God for a brief time at Calvary as the furious wrath of the Father poured out on the sinless Son, who in matchless grace because it became sin for those who believe in him. I don't think we need to be confused. I don't think we need to be overwhelmed except by the majesty and the mystery of it. And that should become a basis for worship and, a pre- and glorifying God because of the, the unknowableness of this. You know, the Western mind wants to be able to categorize and clarify and rationalize and understand everything. And the reality of God and the real majesty of God is that he is unknowable. And we need to know what he has presented that allows us to know him and glory in the unknowableness of him at the same time. And quit trying to get answers for everything. Because to try to take this and put words around it, even what MacArthur does, is uh, yes, we can quantify it. But when we do, we make it little to try to understand it instead of accepting that it is what it is and unknowable and appreciate that for what it is. We don't understand except that he suffered so that we do not have to. And that's what we need to understand. Isaiah 53, 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each two of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Holy Spirit explained, explained it to Isaiah. Isaiah 53:10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Can you understand why Isaiah 53 isn't read in the synagogue? I'm surprised they'd ever look at Psalm 22 either. Habakkuk 113. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? God cannot look on unrighteousness. Paul says in Romans 325, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Again, Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And again in Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law and by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And finally, 1 John 2, 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Important. He died for everyone, but that does not mean everyone is saved. Scripture does not teach a limited atonement. It teaches an unlimited one, but it is only efficacious to those who accept it. But that's what that moment on the cross was all about. That was the work of the cross. He shows forgiveness. He shows concern for others, leading up to the ultimate statement of concern and love. And this is what people hate. Because it says you can do nothing. It's not God giving us 
the grace to be able to work our way into salvation, as Roman Orthodoxy says. It's not salvation plus it's only completed if you're baptized. And if you're baptized by our church, and that's the only way you can make it. No. It's the grace that the thief on the cross received, which is you can do nothing other than accept that gift that God offers to be saved. So now we move into the closing. Some practical things. John 19:28. I thirst. Before he had been offered something, now, and he refused, now he's accepting. Some, some suspect it's because so he could clear a throat so that the people would hear his next statement. Just that practical. May have been an anesthet, a little bit of an anesthetic in it. I don't know. Psalm 69:21 says, They put gall on my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. But the next statement may be the answer. Statement 6, 19, John 19:30. It is finished. These are the next most important words. Because now he is saying everything he has done in the first coming, the incarnation, the way of salvation is complete. The payment for all sin has now been made in a moment in time. Those who had the um, credit cards and were sitting up to the time of the cross, he's now paid that bill. Now And now we get the debit cards, because we're after the fact, and it's already paid. But at that moment in time, every sin that had ever been or would ever been be committed was paid for. And so he says, it's finished. Sadly, there are a lot of people who claim to be Christians that don't believe those words from a practical standpoint. You know, again, if you believe that it's you've got to earn your way to heaven, you've got to go to purgatory and work off your sins, obviously then Christ's payment wasn't adequate. It was just enough to get you into the place where you have a chance to work them off. Or for those who believe Christ, the, the heretical teachings we find in some of Protestant Christendom, that Christ then had to go down and have a wrestling match in hell with Satan to try to grab back the keys to the kingdom, and he had to defeat him there, sort of sneak in the door and beat him because Satan had sort of cast God out of earth. Obviously, it wasn't finished. It had to be finished in hell. Oh, that stuff is even weirder than the other stuff I know. But that's that's not what it says. Christ meant what he says, and anything other than that undermines the sufficiency of the cross. It undermines the sufficiency of Christ's work. In Hebrews 1, 3, and 9, 11 through 12, and 25 to 28, we read, The sun is the radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, of the majesty in heaven. And when Christ came as a high priest of good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that's not man-made. That's to say, not part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of blood and goats, or uh, the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again. I wish, I mean, I mean, it's so simple here. I don't know where people get these ideas. The way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood that's not his own, then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as a man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. It is finished. Nothing left to do. 
if Christ came and stood in the pulpit today before the second coming, he would have nothing new to say that he had that we don't already have in Scripture. Oh, he might say it in applications tied to our world, but content-wise, he would have nothing new to say. There is no additional revelation. There is no additional work. This is what we have to get through to people. This is what is the answer to the cults. This is what's the answer to the heresies in Christianity. This is what's the answer to Roman Orthodoxy. It was one time and it's finished and now he is our high priest. We don't need to go in and sew the veil back up so that we have a priesthood that we have to go through to get to God. He is our high priest. We are all priests. We have direct access to the Father through Christ. It is finished. What a relief. Yes. Where does the resurrection play a part in the The resurrection is the validation and the seal that all that has happened, and we'll talk about this next week, but all that has happened is of God and is what God has promised. And that is, Paul says, the resurrection is the proof that he is who he said he would be. So the work was completed. The resurrection is to show that he is now the first begotten and what we will become, and that is now the promise of what we will have. But if he laid in the ground, then none of this would be real. Paul says if he was not resurrected, then we are the most foolish of all. But the work, for our, the payment for our sin, did not necessitate the resurrection. That is what's done on the cross. And so, Luke 23:46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. As we've gone through the trials and all that, the one thing we keep emphasizing is that Christ, that God was in control of all of these events, that nothing happened outside of his control. Even his enemy's actions were used to carry forward God's plan. And he, he puts the final stamp on the fact that he's in control because it's not the crucifixion, the actual crucifying, the pain and all of that that kills him. He gives up his life when he has accomplished what he needed to do. He says, I'm done. Now I get to go. And choose. And this is why the soldiers were so surprised that he would, because he died much more quickly. Than, he, than anybody would have expected to be. This is why they go up and pierce the side to see if he's actually dead. Because it happened so quickly. Because you could last two or three days on a cross. But he was done. He no longer had any need to stay up there. And even in doing this, he's fulfilling prophecy in Psalm 31, 5. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth. Some people say, well, he was just quoting these things to make himself look like he's fulfilling prophecy. Oh, I'm sorry. He was, you know, he's flipping through, up there dying and suffering. And so he wants to make sure he's got all the bases covered like it's some kind of flipping movie script. He's using his Rolodex. Yeah, right. Come on. No, the psalmist, under the power of the Holy Spirit, was giving the previews. You know, it's interesting to me, David seems to have a better understanding of Christianity and the crucifixion and the cross than a lot of Christians do. I got got a question for him too. Did you really understand these songs when you're writing and the implications of them? Because I think the answer is no. I can see what I'm going to be doing for the first few thousand years of eternity. I'm going to have to get in line because everybody else is going to want to be bugging these people with questions too. So, those are the seven last words. Now, just to create completion... Let's go back to Matthew, and I'll pick up the events that, um, the actual things that were going on with others that we didn't pick up on when we went through this. Going back to verse 38, and I'll just, where we've already touched on it, I'll just summarize. 38 through 40 is where we find in, in Matthew the account of the, of two things. The thieves on the cross, interesting, Matthew just points out the fact that they were harassing him. And then all those who were on the ground that were harassing him, he lets us know. It's really sad that the high priest, 
that describes those who are representing God, the leaders, the ones who should comport themselves with the Spirit of God were down there. They had been so angry and so hateful. They finally got them on the cross and they're down there saying, yay, we finally got you. They're acting like little kids and bullies. And that shows the level of hatred when people hate God. The behavior becomes childish and and tantrum throwing. It becomes irrational and hatred. And that's what was happening here. It's really sad. 41, in the same way the chief priests and the teachers of the law, he saved himself. Who were they trying to convince? Yeah. You know, when you see this level of hostility, it's because you're trying to prove something to yourself. This is the view of Christ looking down at the cross. In the physical world, we read, picking up at verse 45, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Eli, la, Eli lama savastani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of them heard, were standing there, heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran, got a sponge, filled it with vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. And the rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. Interestingly enough that that's what they heard because now they're going back to Messianic prophecy, aren't they? They're saying, let's see if, because if Elijah comes and takes him down off the cross, then by their definition, he is Messiah, right? Because they're expecting Elijah to come. Jesus said they already got the type of Elijah in John, but they're looking for, and still are, when we celebrate Passover, we've got the one place setting with the cup for Elijah. We get one of the kids to go to the door and see if he's shown up this time. So we're still waiting for Elijah to come. So I'm arguing he's one of the two witnesses of Revelation. Yes. Being a saved Jew, do you still put the plate out for Elijah? Sure. Because there's reason to think he may come before the uh, before the second coming. <laughs> well, he was a type of. Which a type meaning that you can also have the reality of. Some speculate. We know he was there at the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Okay. So he did, so he's already shown up once. At the, so why not a second time? And if he's traveling that far, he might want a glass of wine. So. <laughs> Verse fifty-one. And at that moment, so there's earthquakes. There's darkness. And then at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks split and the tombs broke open. And the bodies of this one <laughs> and the bodies of many of uh, many holy people who had died were raised to life. And they came out of the t- tombs. And after Jesus resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Notice the timing here. The earthquakes occurring. This is all going during the crucifixion. The graves open up. Some of the saints of the Lord come up out of the graves and they're around for a while because when he is resurrected, you know, three, then they go into the city. Your uncle Fred comes into town who's been dead and buried. I don't, this is the probably in my, gets my vote is one of the strangest verses in all of scripture. And Matthew just throw, is a throwaway line. Weird. Talk about all questions I've got. Who were you guys? I'm, how come you had to die? What? Anyway. When the centurion and those who were with him, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. And many women were there watching from a distance. And they followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. And among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and John, uh, Joseph, and, Zebediah, and the mother of Zebediah's sons. As the evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself became a disciple of Jesus. And going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered it be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in clean linen cloth 
and placed it in his own new tomb that he'd cut out of a rock. And he rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. Now, Luke actually expands on the information a little bit in 2350 to 51. tells us a little bit more about him. Now, there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. All of the leaders were not supportive of this criminal action against Jesus. We know for sure at least one wasn't, and that was Joseph of Arimathea. He was not only a member of the Sanhedrin, he apparently was a high-ranking person because he had access to Pilate. And he goes and asks Pilate for permission to take responsibility for the body. And the body had to be taken down because this is the, we're coming up on the Sabbath of Passover week, one of the most important Sabbaths of the year. And so Jesus died and was able to be taken down before the, as that sacrifice, as the sacrifice was being recognized, as Passover was being celebrated. And so Joseph, and by the way, he was stick putting himself out there, wasn't he? Because everybody had to know, did you see? I mean, he was one of the leaders on the Sanhedrin. Did you see what Joseph did? He buried Jesus in his own tomb. He's going out there and saying, here's what the rest of the bunch are doing, but I'm taking a public stand against their action. And why? Because Luke tells us he was waiting for the kingdom of God. He was, see, all the leadership in Israel had not turned its back on God. See, there's always a faithful remnant. And so, yes. Um, also in John, we're studying John in our uh, BSF group, and we also had Nicodemus, who met with at night, who came where John John went to records that in the Bible, stating that you know where Nicodemus came also, mm-hmm. we brought the myrrh and the aloes. So we've got at least a few among the leadership who recognize their actions for what it is. And we're followers of Jesus. See? Nicodemus was a little less willing to be public. But Joseph, maybe he, because of his importance, maybe he felt he was safe or maybe it didn't matter to him. What he did was more important. And they had to do, and what's happening here is because of the timing, basically they're doing a quickie job. We'll talk about this more next week. But this is why the women were waiting there because they couldn't really prepare the body adequately because there was not enough time in relationship to the Sabbath. So they just quickly wrapped him and put him, and Joseph put him in his own tomb, in his new tomb. And the tomb is sealed. The soldiers guard it. The disciples are hiding out. The women are there, but the women are there to prepare the body. Nobody is there waiting around to see what's going to happen next. Rome is just concerned, based on what the Jewish leadership are saying, that the body doesn't get stolen. Because the reason they went along with this whole thing is so the situation doesn't get out of hand. If the body gets stolen, everything they've done is for nothing because it's all going to, all whatever is going to break loose. But the disciples aren't there waiting to see, and the women are not there in expectation of the resurrection either. After all, this one said, well, of course there'll be the resurrection, but whenever. And so the resurrection, as we'll talk about next week, becomes God's stamp saying, this is reality. This is what I said was going to happen. It sets the stage for stage two, the second coming. Each has its own complete completeness. The first coming, the incarnation, was for the primary purpose was for giving the gift of salvation, paying for our sins. The second coming, the final purpose of that is the completion of all of the restoration, not just of humanity, but of all creation. 
to restore God's creation to full righteousness, to remove all unrighteousness. And that's what we're waiting for. Provision for salvation is complete. The work of total restoration is yet to come. Baker et al. note the phrase, it is finished, signifies the completion of Jesus' work and the establishment of a basis for faith. Nothing further needed to be done. His act was voluntary and confident, for he had discharged perfectly the Father's purpose and was triumphantly leaving the scene of his human struggle. This expression is almost certainly a shout of victory. John makes it the final report of Jesus to the Father, who will now exalt him in glory. Having said this, Jesus laid his head to rest and dismissed his spirit. He retained consciousness and command of himself to the very end. Wesley says, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies." Who can explore his strange design? Wesley apparently understands mysticism better than some. Jesus, I think, Christ, I think upon your sacrifice. You became nothing poured out to death. Many times I've wondered at the gift of your life. I'm in that place once again. I'm in that place once again. Now you are exalted to the highest place. King of the heavens, where one day I'll bow. But for now, I marvel at this saving grace. I'm full of praise once again. I'm full of praise once again. And once again, I look upon the cross where you died. I'm humbled by your mercy and I'm broken inside. Once again, I thank you. Once again, I pour out my life. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross, my friend.